and welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester-Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. This week on the Product Science Podcast, I have Carlos Gonzalez de Villambrosia. He is the founder and CEO of Product School, the global leader in product management training with a community of over 1 million product professionals. Carlos, welcome. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So I always love to hear people's stories about how they got into product to start. So um, how did you how did you get started in, in the whole industry? Great question. I ask that question a lot as well because we, we work with a lot of PMs. My story, I, I would say, is kind of un- unconventional because um, I come from Spain. So I actually didn't know anything about product management or even Silicon Valley when I was learning about tech. I started computer science in Madrid. And, uh, you know, back in the day, this is what, 12, 13 years ago, product management wasn't an option. So I just knew soon enough that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life coding. And I kind of felt bad because you, I was looking around and everyone was super excited about coding. And then in university, they told me, well, you're going to start as a software engineer. And if you do well, you'll become a senior software engineer and then maybe a principal engineer. And I was the only one kind of raising their hand saying, well, <laughs> what if, is there anything else in store? No, sorry, bad luck. You just signed up for computer science. And uh, so... My alternative at that time was business school. I know it sounds aggressive, but that's the only thing I knew. And I also wanted to be in tech. I just didn't know how, and Silicon Valley sounded like a dream to me. So I decided to come here with all the money that I saved. I never bought a house or a car. So I just put everything in one basket and come here to study a a graduate program in UC Berkeley. And as soon as I came here, I had two breakthroughs. (laughs) One is, well, first of all, I'm not the only one who's thinking, who comes from a technical background is thinking business. There are many other engineers or people in general with technical backgrounds who, who, who wanted something different. And I was feeling at least refreshed knowing that, okay, <laughs> there are more people with the same problem. I'm not the only one. But I also met a lot of other people coming from different backgrounds, such as management consulting or finance. They also wanted to work in tech. They also wanted to get, to get their hands dirtier. But they were feeling very intimidated by not knowing how to code or just working with engineers. So here we are, two different groups of people trying to tackle the same problem from, from different angles. And again, I still didn't even know what product management was. Because in business school, in two years, full time, I, had a, I, hadn't, I didn't have a single class on product or even digital marketing, data analytics, UX design. I mean, it's crazy. You have at least a third of the class that works, wants to work in tech. And still, nobody's teaching us anything about tech. So after graduation, I continued working. Uh, I'm a founder by nature, so I've started three companies, two before product school, and all of them in education space because I kind of have a love-hate relationship with education, as you can tell. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I then realized that, oh, my God, I've been building websites, mobile apps, building companies, but in reality, everything I learned was on the go, just by seeking advice or talking to mentors I was part of couple of accelerator programs. And that was another moment where I said, well, what if none of the next generation or other people are going through the same struggles and I can accelerate that learning path? And that was the inspiration behind product school, which is a hybrid in between an engineering school and a business school that hopefully gets the best out of both worlds and 
delivers training for people who want to become product managers or grow their product careers in a much more efficient way. So at the end of the day, I believe in lifelong learning. I don't understand why we need to study full-time until our mid-20s and then stop and work full-time for the rest of our lives. So uh, having this type of flexible model not only allows students to to learn as, as they grow in their careers, but also attract incredible instructors to teach. Because I believe that the best teachers are actually not teachers, they are practitioners. And um, in our case, everyone who teaches at product school is a product leader who keeps their full-time job at Google, Facebook, Uber, Airbnb, and other tech companies. And, and that's that's where we are today. Yeah. Uh, there are several things you said in there that really resonated with me. I think my favorite was like, like why why do we study full time until we're in our twenties and then work full time? Um, wouldn't it be so great if there was more of a blended model for the rest of our lives? Like just right. I mean, it doesn't sound that crazy to me. Yeah. Uh, like we were told a certain mental model that we've been all following forever, and it seems like we have to check a box and continue and follow the path and. To be honest, this is not that risky. If you think about it, like a lot of people would like to read a book or watch Netflix or do whatever after work, well, or go to the gym. What if you just block a few hours per week to learn something the same way you can block hours to take care of your body or, or just have fun with friends or family? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I want to hear more about those other startups like because I love hearing the journey. Um, what was the first startup that you started? Yes, so I've been a rebel by nature since the beginning. And uh, I was actually in college uh, as a, a computer science student. And I was a company similar to TED, uh, TED events, but for mm. people who don't know TED, I was in my early 20s back in the day and I already was geeking out and, and checking out TED videos thinking, oh my God, this is so inspiring. I really want to learn from these people. However, I don't know what these people are in real life. So that's exactly what I decided to do, bring some people that I wanted to learn from to my university. And I'm not talking about just business people. I brought athletes, movie directors, uh, book authors, pretty much anyone who had an interesting story to share. And uh, I just asked them, why don't you come to our school to tell us what you were doing when you were our age? And they all loved it because they're used to giving talks in front of a lot of, you know, more like professionals, but not in front of kids. And we are the ones who needed that inspiration the most. And that was a magical moment because I didn't do it for money. I just did it for fun. I just wanted to learn. But it also taught me how to call email celebrities <laughs> or get together with other people to find sponsors, to find a venue and, and pretty much create something out of nothing. And this, this thing scaled in a, in a very organic way, we start getting all other students in other universities that resonated with the message. So we start creating local groups, first in the same city, Madrid, then in multiple cities in Spain. Then when I went to business school, we did the same in Berkeley. Then we opened chapters in New York and other parts of the US. And here we are with a huge community of rebel students getting, inspiring people in their cities to share their stories. So that was kind of the beginning of my journey. And my second company was also in the education space as a follow-up, because I realized that doing events is nice, but at the end of the day, it's very inspiring, but what are you going to do tomorrow? Mm -hmm. And it was very clear that a lot of people had this aha moment, but then it would go back to the regular life and couldn't implement some of the tactics that they, they probably heard the day before. So I decided to create a second company. It was an education marketplace, similar to what today is Udemy.com or yes. even YouTube. 
just a place where anyone can teach anything. And our angle was to do this in Spanish and Portuguese to tackle not just Spain and Portugal, but also the entire Latin American market. And mm-hmm. uh, it was a fascinating journey. That's what I did actually after business school because mm-hmm. I did this for profit. I learned how to raise money, to, to really pay payroll. Uh, we were part of three accelerator programs with that company back in the day. So one in Europe, then I lived in, in Chile, Latin America, one was part mm-hmm. of Startup Chile. And then I came back to the US to be part of 500 startups. So I always say that I'm hyper accelerated. Yeah, <laughs> you are. So tell us more about some of the some of the things that you learned with that business. Like what um, what problem did it solve for people, and and were there any lessons you learned along the way where you realized like, oh, actually, we we kind of had to change our direction a little bit. The hardest lesson for me was focus. I mm-hmm. was trying to to solve too many problems for too many people at the same time. So we create a marketplace to teach anything to anyone, almost like YouTube, but for education, right? Without the videos about cats and so on. But at the end of the day, like we are a small startup and we don't have unlimited resources. So it's really hard to be the best at more than a few things. So I decided to say, look, this was a great learning experience. It was for almost three years. We, we did the whole Silicon Valley VC thing of raising money, growing fast, figuring out how to monetize later, obviously make some customers happy, but not everyone. And uh, we, then we had to pivot to go from a B2C model more towards a B2B profitable model. And then when that company was on track, it wasn't going to be the unicorn that I wish it, it was. I decided to start my, my next thing, which is product school. And I was very clear with product school. I knew that, first of all, it has to be very specific. I want to solve one problem to one person and then hopefully it grows from there. But my ambition shouldn't be, this has to be a unicorn from the beginning. No, this has to be a real thing for a few people that they love it and then we'll see um i also didn't want to spend my life pitching powerpoints to investors that was a choice that that makes me happier to be connected to the customer and to the product so that was another thing that i i decided to do since the beginning and uh, i can't help it you know i like growth as well and i'm treat things think of things as products so as soon as we started seeing some signs of traction we i also wanted to grow so six years Forward now, we we're a community of over one million product professionals. We've graduated over ten thousand product people from around the world. But like those initial concepts were literally the opposite of what I did with my previous company. Mm. Oh, that's that's really interesting to hear. So, I think a lot of product people and a lot of startup founders, especially, have a lot of trouble with focus. There's a lot of you know, let's solve all these problems, or like we need to be. We need a big market, so we have to solve this problem for this person, and this problem for this person, and this problem for this person, or it won't be big enough. And um, you know, I think your I think your story really illustrates that uh, the focus is what gets you to to the place where you can grow um, into different areas, or you can expand different regions of the country or the globe um, and grow that way. That's that's really great. When when you were working with the the startup before product school. What was that startup called? It was called Flock. F-L-O-Q-Q, similar like a flock of birds. Okay, got it. Flock. Um, so when you were working for, when you were doing Flock, what was the size of like the, the engineering and product team? At its largest, we were 35 people and the engineering team was at least 50%. Mm-hmm. So did you have any experiences in that that... Um, 
did you notice how the focus affected the engineers and, and what kind of impact that had on their ability to develop the product? Absolutely. And I, I was wearing the hat of the product manager in addition to other hats at the startup. And um, I realized that we like that lack of focus made the engineers also nervous because we would go from aha moment to what we thought it was another aha moment, but really without having enough data or traction to to prove some of those hypotheses and that plus the pressure of running out of money it can be good because it keeps you hungry and you know like works hard but at the same time it also adds an additional level of unhealthy pressure in my case and also for for part of my team because as a, as a founder sometimes first of all you have access to the entire picture you know exactly what's going on on the engineering front but also on the on the vc front and and, and you also have more opportunities because to be fair, like I've seen a lot of founders who end up becoming product managers, who end up building another company. They build an incredible network of other founders and VCs. But um, what for me is a three or six month uh, run rate, it's it's okay, it's fine. For other people, when I was sharing that, they, they were like, oh my God, you only have six months more? And what if it doesn't take off? So I could also tell how the expectations sometimes are misaligned. And it makes sense because as a founder, you also have a higher upside, right? You keep more, more of the equity. So it really taught me a lot about really personal dynamics, uh, communication and manage expectations. And uh, I think that was the biggest lesson is how to work with people beyond the tech stack that you are using for, for building a particular product. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, so what do you... Uh, what do you tell founders today who are struggling with that as well? Have you have you worked with founders who um, find themselves in those shoes? Yes, and um, I'm actually now mentoring other founders through uh, the some of the accelerators I was when they part of as a, as a student or as a founder. And I don't claim to have all the answers. I, I always talk from experience. And I say, hey, I'm not bringing the typical Silicon Valley playbook. And that was what, at least something to, to, to say because... I was feeling a lot of pressure as well when people would ask me, how much money have you raised? How big is your team? It's almost like a way to qualify you. While mm-hmm. I, at the beginning, felt that. Or, oh, are you a teacher? Well, first of all, there's nothing wrong <laughs> with being a, a teacher. Uh, mm-hmm. But also, there's, and there's nothing wrong with not raising money. There's nothing wrong with having a small and lean team. It's all about what makes you happy. And I think I try to go to those fundamentals when I see founders, you know, kind of running that, that rat race about uh, chasing money sometimes. And then I, I talk about reputation because, mm-hmm. yes, this, learn, this journey is, is long and, and, you know, I'm only at the beginning of my life journey, but still, like, a lot of the people who are working with me today started working with me two companies ago, maybe as interns. And some of the VCs that invested in me are friends now, and they connected me with other people, not necessarily VCs, or I also helped other people in my company to start their own businesses. So... I know it's not easy, but I think that being honest with your team when things are especially not going well uh, is what keeps you alive in the long term. I've seen also too many founders kind of trying to just take advantage of the situation or not being fair to team or or VCs. And and in those times, you also see the true face of of a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. do you do you think that translates as well to um, you know caring about your reputation as a as a product manager inside a company, even if you're not a founder? 
I think there's so much overlap between product people and founders, especially when when a founder starts a company, because at the very beginning, company equals product. And then, of course, as the company grows, there's more than that. So, yes, absolutely. I work with a lot of uh, PMs who end up working as founders. I work with a lot of founders who at some point decide to join a larger organization as PMs. So yeah, that that mindset is is very similar in a way because you're 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 building something. You can always decide if you want to build it for yourself or for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then let's let's talk a little bit more about some of the lessons you've learned along the way with product school. So it sounds like you know you already had a lot of hard lessons before you even started, which probably gave you a lot of focus. Um, when Tell us more about that journey. How, um, I mean, you mentioned that you didn't want to be in the, in the sort of VC rat race. So did you, um, did you go a different direction with how to, how to fund it? Yes. So I had a small exit, my previous company when uh, we we ended up making it profitable. So some of our VCs um, bought, bought the founding team out. And with that little money, I was able to reinvest into my next thing. I cannot help it. I was supposed to take two months on, off to figure out what to do. But, you know, two weeks after I was already uh, strategizing and building and, and doing things. So, you know, that allowed me to at least start without having to uh, spend too much time asking for, for money. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did something that I could build myself as a product person with over 10 years of experience. I was also the first instructor. Mm-hmm. I've been in, I love teaching. And so I said, okay, I'm going to build the first curriculum. I'm going to be the first instructor. I'm going to find the first 10 students and I'm going to be self-sufficient. And then that will give me options. And then we can always decide what else we can do. So that's exactly how I started. Uh, all the classes I said before are on weeknights or weekends. So I almost had two full-time jobs because I had, I was working Monday through Friday as, as usual, but then also on weeknights and weekends, I was teaching those classes mm-hmm. and I was I, I love it. I really do. Um, because you connect with your people in a very authentic way. It's not just a five-minute conversation. You are sharing two months of their journey and they, they come to you because they want to get a job or they want to get a promotion. So really try to do my very best from the teaching standpoint to the chef standpoint. I would bring meals literally to the classes. Back in the day, our first classes were in person in San Francisco and we were renting offices in uh, co-working spaces because mm-hmm. I also didn't want to have any long time debt or anything my office was literally a laptop mm-hmm. <laughs> i convinced some of my friends who work as pms at google facebook and other cool companies in silicon valley to first work as guest speakers with me then eventually start leading their own classes and that allowed me to also focus more on on growth but like the common theme behind everything that i've done is is, reinve- is re- to reinvest in growth i believe in long term Obviously, as long as you can pay your bills and, and be safe. But my goal was never to have a lifestyle business or to just cash out. It was to really build something organically that, that uh, and as, as soon as there is some return, put it back into the community so we can continue growing. I believe that what we are doing is, is good and I have no rush to, to leave. I'm, I think this is, the, this is my idea. I don't know if I'm going to have a better idea in the future, to be honest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's something that you're very passionate about, I can tell. So what are some of the um, difficult points that you experienced along that journey? Or, you know, did, were there times when you weren't sure if you were going to keep going or when you had to face a big decision and how did you handle it? 
Well, first, I think there's a lot of uh, external pressure, yes, because of the environment uh, I live in. It's constant. Uh, people are always asking you about how much money did you raise, how big is your team, and you see the news. And so not kind of living in that environment without playing that game, it's already pressure in itself. But also, just yes, talking about the business, for me, it was really hard to delegate that um, to the next instructor because it got to a point where I really, really knew what I was doing. Like I was helping people get jobs and I know it, I would go all, like, you know, take coffees with people if they needed it. It was, it was more than just a, a teacher-student relationship. So how can I pass that on to someone who's going to care as much as I do for these students? It was really hard for me and it, was, and it took probably longer than it should. Like at least the first year I, I did absolutely everything myself. And so that also forced me to create processes and document things and still be there as an auditor, but keeping quality high, I think was the underlying thing here. It's, it's everything. I don't want to sacrifice quality as we grow. So that thing that I just said about me delegating is what I'm facing today when we are trying to open a new market or continue growing at a different scale because now there are many more people teaching. I mean, I don't teach anymore, unfortunately, because I mm -hmm. really love it. I still participate sometimes as a guest speaker and mentor some students, but I don't lead any of the cohorts that we, we run. But we have at least 25 instructors every week teaching in parallel. And so we need to have this type of process. And I think that building that culture that was uh, quality is one of the values in our culture, it was so core to me that I, it's still part of the company's culture. And I, and I hope that we can continue creating that type of culture as we scale and it's not reliant on the founder. I think the very beginning founder culture is the company's culture for good or for worse. But it gets to a point where now over 50 people full-time plus all the instructors where it's not about me anymore. This is not Carlos school. This is really product school. So how do you really make sure that you bring on board, not just instructors, but also team members full-time that embrace part of the culture. They don't need to say yes to everything and can also shape it for the better. Mm -hmm. So how do you make sure that you're doing that? I still do that. So this is one of the very few uh, functions that I personally do recruiting. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, I don't do the entire cycle, but um, I am part of the final interview process, which is just pure cultural fit. Mm -hmm. when, when I talk to a candidate, I'm already assuming that this person has been approved by uh, hiring managers and, and they know what they're supposed to know. It's more about what they think about the future. And I always tell them upfront, I'm not here to interview you, even though obviously it is an interview. But I try to be as honest as possible and just talk about what you want. Because the worst thing that can happen is that a few months from now, then we realize that this is not going to work. At the end of the day, we're not that big yet. And every time you introduce a new person into a team, doesn't matter if it's a remote team, it's, it's a big part. It makes a big impact. And it's mm -hmm. a big part of the journey for a lot of other people. It creates connections and it can really change the trajectory of your business for, for good or, or for bad. So I try to make them aware of this, not to scare them, but make them feel that you are going to make an impact. This is not what large companies tell you of like, oh, we'll start up within a startup, right? <laughs> no, no, this is a real startup. And maybe when we are 5,000 people, there are other things, but we are 50, we all know everyone by their name. So if, if, you, if this feels like a fit, then let's keep talking. But if, if, if this is not enough or not, not or too much for you, then, then that's fine. Let's, let's all stop here. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that makes a lot of sense. 
so you mentioned, you know, uh, how hard it was to delegate as well. Um, what are some of the lessons you learned along the way about doing it, even though it's hard? How do you do that? Well, there is no way around it. That's uh, number one. It's uh, you're, it's you're paying you're paying with your health at the end of the day if you don't mm-hmm. delegate. And uh, and I, looking back, I wish I had delegated certain things earlier. At the same time, I'm, I'm happy that I was able to you know, to prevent it, to keep up with the quality. But it's true that you're also preventing people from the opportunity to learn what's in your mind. So uh, no, I'm not saying that the, perfect, the process is perfect today, but definitely we have a stronger process around delegation. And I also have other people who can raise their hand and say, hey, I got this, like enough is enough. So I, I appreciate having type of pushback sometimes because also as a, as a founder, I get very obsessive about certain things, especially the ones that I, care the most about or I think that I'm good at like obviously product or go to market is, is what I love so bringing strong leaders that I can fully trust and I spend a lot of time actually building that relationship to make sure that I can trust is a huge lesson learned for me and obviously when I hire someone good I'm thinking oh my god I wish you were here earlier mm-hmm. yeah um, are you at the point where you also help other people with their delegation skills I try to, but again, the same way I mentor um, spying PMs or existing PMs, uh, I try to keep part of my agenda open to be, to be proactive, sorry, to be reactive, because like I just can't, I, I, I also made that mistake in the past of really packing my calendar to decide exactly what I have to do today, tomorrow, and almost the, the entire week. Mm-hmm. And while that could make me productive on paper, that would make me blind especially because there are other people that, that, that need me or might need me. So I try to keep a better balance now, 50-50, where like the absolute things that I can do that I cannot delegate with uh, keeping some flexibility for, for people to have a one-on-one, to just listen to them, to be part of certain meetings. So I try not to impose certain things so it doesn't feel like I'm macromanaging, but I try to spend time just observing and uh, and asking questions. And if I see an opportunity to help and the other person is receptive, absolutely. And sometimes the, the help doesn't mean, oh, Carlos is coming here to give me his, uh, you know, I don't have the crystal ball, my silver bullet to say, this is exactly what you have to do. But I try to be more of a resource finder. So if I don't have the answer, I can find someone in my network who might help. And I think I'm getting good at that. Now I am also appreciating those type of relationships because instead of, saying, oh, I, I need to give you the answer. No, no, let me triple check this with people. And even if I think I have the answer, I think it's so healthy to run certain ideas by people with, within the company, but also outside the company. And in our case, particularly, I also seek advice. I, when I started, I didn't have a board because since you didn't have investors, technically we didn't need a, a board. Mm-hmm. But I realized that this is not just for investors, this is for us. And uh, the, the beautiful thing about not having investors is that when I create a, a presentation for advisors, I don't need to sell a dream. I can be perfectly honest because at the end of the day, I'm responsible for this and I'm applying my own pressure. So the same way I try to be resourceful for others, I seek advice and I have no problem asking. Mm-hmm. That's great. So how did you go about putting together um, a board of advisors for yourself when you know it wasn't that traditional investor structure? Yeah, so I didn't do it for the first years until we grew to a certain size that we realized that we didn't know the answers to a lot of things beyond just product. So I would say again, like hiring, I wish I had done this earlier, first of all, 
But it's also an interesting journey because hiring an advisor is not just having someone for coffee to give you one or two hours of their, their time. It's really engaging in a relationship. You have to onboard this person properly. You want to make sure this person really understands and, and cares about the business. Yes, you, you compensate them. But at the end of the day, a lot of the advisors, the best ones I've seen, they they do it because they love the, the, the founder or the team behind the product. It's not just because of the equity or the cash. I'm talking about the startup level. It's not like advisors at public companies. So I, I realized that it's my hunt and I treated it like a, any other hiring process. And it took me time and uh, actually ended up working. We have advisors who I know for years. Maybe we knew in a different capacity. For example, my first internship, my manager there, is now my advisor in marketing. It is a person who actually showed me what product management is. And uh, it's incredible that 10 years after, we are still working together. And this is because we had a really good time working and learning from each other. So I'm a big fan of keeping relationships, not just because of the commercial interest, just because it's also your reputation. You never know. If you're here for the long term, you really need to do the right thing. And, and it's all about really being honest with people. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, did you find any advisors that were people you didn't know already? And, and how did you go about finding them? Yeah, so I really, I, I'm still working with developing the muscle of asking for help. And it, obviously I go to my first degree network first, but in some cases they also don't know all the answers and they can connect me with other people that they trust. So really investing time in, in, uh, in, in hanging out and in, in asking for advice with these people and asking for, for an additional connection, of course, making sure that that you are going to give value. It's not that you're asking just for help and not following up with them. Like I am very strict with that. Like if someone connects me with another person, I definitely reply first within 12 hours. I make myself available. I follow up after that meeting. I make sure to say thank you to the person who made the introduction. I think closing the loop, that's how I call it. Closing the loop is very important. It's saying thank you at the end of interaction. Just double check that everyone understands. It might sound like a waste of time for some people, but it's absolutely critical, especially now that we don't have the opportunity to hang out in person. And uh, But yeah, it's a, it's a learning process. And some of the advisors that I had five years ago don't, don't work for what I need to do today. And I think that's also fine. And it's important to recognize that the same with in startups, when, when you hire people, not everyone is going to continue the journey with you forever. When you engage with an advisor, it's fair to have those conversations and, and annual or biannual check-ins to know exactly what the expectations are. Because at least in my case, I also had to um, either remove advisors or add new ones and still manage to be in good terms with everyone because it's not about, you know, like aspiring an advisor. No, it's really trying to get to an understanding because you never know if you will have to advise that person in the future, if that person will need to advise you later, or if there's a mutual friend that, you know, I'm obsessed with reputation more, much more than, than ever. I think that maybe that's because I'm growing up. I also have two kids. So I tried yeah, to, I thought I heard me. one in the background at one point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How old are your kids? One and three. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. So, so you're, so you were saying, um, that uh, the, you're growing, maybe it's because you're growing up, but you know, this matters a lot to you. Mm-hmm. How do you think, I'm, I'm curious now, how do you think the kids have affected you? Have they affected how you do your work? So the same way I told you that my, in product school, I learned focus, like how to pick a specific problem and solve, hopefully solve it for a very few group of people. 
first, when I got married, I had to learn to, to split my time. Before I was all about work, everything's a distraction. I'm here to hustle and so on. And I learned that the hard way, no, you can, you can also have to be happy and uh, working more doesn't necessarily make you more productive. Sounds like a cliche, but I actually learned it the hard way. So the next iteration was when I had one kid and then two kids just breaks all the processes for me. So <laughs> trying exactly for me to, to pick those problems that I need to tackle because I just don't have as much time as I used to. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm laughing because I have two kids too. So I'm like, oh yeah, two kids broke all the processes, right? <laughs> um, yeah, so do you feel like now that you have more reason for that balance, is that um, a net positive for you? Definitely. Um, I've never been happier and healthier. It makes me, like, now that I have to think about other people and that are around me, uh, not claiming to have the, the secret formula by any means, but at least it pushes me to be more productive at work because I just don't have a plan B, I just can't procrastinate. But also it makes me try to be more present when I'm not at working because I also know that this time is, is pressure. So I think I'm learning how to, I know in product management, we always say you have to learn how to say no. Uh, well, that's on steroids as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, that's awesome. So are there any other things that you want to share that, um, you know, whether it's for product managers, I mean, I guess we haven't really touched too much on, um, product managers trying to get promotions and things like that, but I, that that's a part of what you, what you help people with. Right. So how do you, how do you do that? So you, you know, what's very interesting that when I started six years ago, a lot of people would ask me, what is product management? Is this a project management or is this like a, is this a coding bootcamp thing that you don't code or how does it work? You know, like it was a, a lot of misconceptions and still are, but, but now I think that the market has accepted this concept and recognizes it the need to have people as generalists in tech and way beyond tech. Because at the end of the day, we're using products and it's not just for high-tech companies in Silicon Valley, banks, uh, insurance companies. Every company that more than one employee needs some sort of software to collaborate. So I think that timing helped us a lot to educate that market. But at the end of the day, we started as a category and they're trying to create or grow that category. Now there's much more education also around career paths. It's not just about, oh, how do I get a product management job? It's also, well, I got my product management job, now what? And that's a fair question. I think part of the solution is, and I'm glad to, to hear that, is that product now is its own function. Before, it used to report to marketing or maybe technology, to a CMO or to a CTO. Now we see the role of the CTO, Chief Product Officer, with direct report to the CEO. And in many cases, the CEO is actually a product person, someone who was working as a PM, so that obviously helps and creates a, a product a culture within the organization. So... I've seen three paths, basically, just to keep it simple. One is entrepreneurship. I think we touched on that. I've seen PMs becoming founders, founders becoming PMs, and not, there's no right or wrong order here. The, but in, in terms of the corporate ladder, I've seen two main paths. One is the individual contributor path, and the other one is the people manager path. So for individual contributors, uh, and I'm glad to see that now there are more principal product managers or product leads that are being compensated as much as a group product manager, for example. And I think that's very important because I made that mistake with engineers, promoting a software engineer to a CTO and ruining a really good IC and making a really bad manager. Now, at least I've seen companies that have the opportunity to give 
good PMs the, the chance to grow and, and get rewarded for that without feeling the pressure of, oh my God, now I, don't, I cannot be in the weeds. Now I have to start managing people if I don't want to. So that's, that's one option. But the people manager option is the, the one that we said, like group product manager, eventually VP of product or who knows, chief product officer or, or CEO. Yeah. So how do you help people who are looking to move up that pathway? So the first, we have three certifications. The first one is a core product manager certificate focused on spiking PMs to get that first PM job. And that's fairly tactical. So we use a lot of the frameworks and teach the hard skills that people need to do the job today. Like how to build a roadmap, how to run a user uh, usability testing and so on. But it gets to a point, once you get that down, that there's a huge disconnection between hard and soft skills. So the, the other two courses we call product leader and product executive certificates are all about those soft skills. Really, some of that we discussed at the beginning, uh, interpersonal dynamics, how do you communicate, how do you earn that, that trust or that respect, especially because you are not technically the manager of engineers or designers. And, and then there are other, other things, I wouldn't call it hard skills, but still things that you can learn about how to set up a product strategy. Um, and I think it's very important for folks that kind of come back to school that don't feel that, oh my God, now I'm a student and people are going to look down on me. Absolutely not. Like you are here to train your brain the same way you train your body. And uh, this is not going to stop you from anything. And, and it's a good thing. Like we don't know all the answers, especially as we grow up in our career. I always joke that the very beginning, we're always asking for what is the playbook? Then it gets to a point where like, oh, here's the playbook. And then as you grow even more, you're like, okay, there's no playbook. How do we do this together? You know, so coming with that type of attitude and low ego is very important if you really want to be a good people manager. Mm-hmm. I love it. That's fantastic. And and I agree, those soft skills, you know, really make the difference when you're going up in the in the career ladder. That's that's what really ends up mattering a lot there. Do you have any um, you know, favorite advice that you like to give um, people who are trying to go up in their product careers? Yes. So for starters, I always say build something because there's never been a better time in history to build something. Now, you don't need to be a software engineer, a PhD. You need to know how to code, basically. There's a lot of uh, good tools out there. But for people who are trying to, to lead, what I say is lead. Like, don't ask for permission. I've seen this happening a lot. Like When I give promotions and I've seen other, other managers do the same, the person who gets the promotion is usually someone who's been acting as a leader before the title someone who's been looking for those pockets of opportunity to help someone. Or even if that person doesn't have the answer, he's been the resourceful person who finds someone who does have the answer. So if that's the people that I'm looking for. That's the people that really other people look up to. So yes, it would be great to have the official authority, but before you need to earn that respect and that can only be done by your own action. So don't ask for permission, leaders lead. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So the final thing I want to ask is just where can people find you and find product school? Yes. Well, I'm active on social media, especially on LinkedIn. My last name is so complicated. So I, I hope you can uh, write it down after, but if not, just say Carlos product school and you will find me there. And of course, uh, for our company, just go to productschool.com. I'm very happy we got that domain early on. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, Carlos. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. 
we teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you love the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you.